This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. This is the 221st episode, and today we're going to be talking about Pebble Mine. But before we get to that, and uh, some of the reasons why we're talking about that, I did want to address the elephant in the room. That is to say, the way I sound. Probably not the normal voice you're used to hearing, and that's because I was at the fly fishing show, both in Marlboro, Massachusetts, and in Edison, New Jersey, over the last two weekends. And a small bit of congestion is a modest price to pay for all the hands I shaked and all the conversations I had and all the good times I had with so many fantastic people in fly fishing. And the fact of the matter is, you spend two weekends out in the wintertime, and there's a very good chance you're going to get something. So uh, I'd do it all over again if I had the opportunity. But a little bit of congestion, a little bit of tea to keep me going as I talk for the next 20 minutes. Um, but I was going to talk about the fly fishing show today on the podcast. Uh, but then something important happened, something exciting happened. And that is the striking down of the Pebble Mine Project in Alaska. Now, there's a very good chance that if you have zero social media presence, uh, that if you only listen to a couple of podcasts, if you listen to this podcast, um, and you maybe stop in a fly shop now and again, you are aware of what Pebble Mine is in general terms and the fact that most anglers are against the thing happening. The anti-Pebble Mine stickers and patches and signs and logos, it's the big, you know, do not cross uh, logo with Pebble Mine in it, have become ubiquitous. Uh, you see them all over the place, uh, everywhere from uh, water bottles to fly shop windows to the bumpers of trucks with rod bolts on them. It's all over the place. So this is something that has been well covered and has been given the attention that it deserves. And the fact of the matter is that for at least uh, 10 years, 
the current actions that inevitably led to it being shut down and being canceled by the EPA have been something that have been actively pursued by Trout Unlimited and by a number of other agencies. But before we get into the fact that it is canceled, which is seen as a great victory and a, a wonderful thing uh, by many, not just in the fly fishing world, but in conservation, in sport fishing, in commercial fishing, in wildlife conservation in general, as well as in those who want to preserve Alaska for what it is, uh, let's talk a little bit about what in the world Pebble Mine was supposed to be, where it was, and why it was such a hot button issue. Now, something I do want to address before I get into that is that I have the flexibility as being a relatively small operation at casting across of hopping right into this, you know, having a plan to have one podcast episode and shifting really fast. I'm kind of a, a, a canoe out in the water. I can quickly turn uh, 90 degrees. Uh, some of the big fly fishing podcasts uh, are going to do some really good stuff. I anticipate in the coming days, weeks, and months regarding what happened at Pebble Mine. And some of those podcasts, if you go back in their archives, you can inevitably find things where they're talking about the fight as it's happening, and they're doing so with the conservationists, the biologists, and the activists that are were actively working on shutting Pebble Mine down and have ultimately succeeded. And so I would absolutely encourage you to go uh, seek those things out, uh, but keep listening to what I talk about because it'll give you that primer so that some of the vocabulary will hopefully uh, come naturally to you as you listen to those things or, uh, by all means, go and read things online. There's so much written, and there's things that are written from a non-fly fishing perspective which can be helpful as well. So just a little bit of a of a of an encouragement and an aside before I get into to the podcast. So where was Pebble Mine going to be? Well, it's going to be in Alaska. Alaska is a big place though. So where in Alaska was it? So if you're looking at Canada and she's looking back at you, hanging off her right shoulder is Alaska. And drooping down off the middle of the state, the very south central part of Alaska is that archipelago, that, that, that string of islands with a peninsula that connects uh, to, to, to the main body of Alaska, the continental United States. And it swings down kind of at a southwesterly direction. But right at the base of that peninsula, up into the heart of Alaska, is where Pebble Mine was going to be. And it was to uh, mine uh, elements like copper and gold, uh, as well as something called, uh, oh goodness, molybdenum, I think is what it is. I mean, thus, thus concludes the extent of my knowledge of chemistry. Um, but these are chemicals and these are excuse me elements that are incredibly valuable uh, across the various industries uh, obviously technology is a huge uh, consumer of something like gold it's you know not just for pretty necklaces and, and earrings and things like that uh, copper is something that is is used in building as well as in technology uh, they are things that have good valuable uses and it was found in the 1980s that this area of Alaska was rich in these elements. In fact, uh, people believe that this is would be, had, had it been tapped into, the second largest ore deposit of its kind in the entire world, which is pretty significant uh, when, when you consider the size of the entire world. But where this area sits is, ecologically speaking, diverse, remarkable, and and majestic uh, to to use only a few different uh, superlative words. Um, what's going on there? 
Well, this is classic Alaska. This is not cold, frozen tundra. Uh, this is uh, woods and mountains and rivers and bays and grizzlies and caribou and moose and all of the things that you would expect in Alaska. Uh, moreover, it is an area that has a significant uh, population of people given you know where we're talking about not significant by like east coast standards but a significant part uh, of alaska as far as human population go and a lot of the industry is directly tied to the land and this in particular is why fly fishing causes organizations brands things like that have taken up the mantle of defending the area against the pebble mine. In fact, one of the remarkable things about uh, about Bristol Bay, which is which is the area that is the downstream drainage from where the proposed pebble mine site is, which was something we'll, we'll talk about here in a moment, uh, it is the largest sockeye salmon spawning habitat in the world. The largest sockeye salmon spawning habitat in the world. But along with sockeyes, there's also chinooks, cohos, chums, pinks, every species of Pacific salmon that is found in Alaska is found in Bristol Bay, is found in the watershed that is downstream from the proposed pebble mine site. And this is why it's an issue, because everything that happens upstream has an impact downstream. Everything that you do upriver is going to have an impact downriver. And mining is no small thing. Now, mining is something that has been happening around the world since we looked at the ground and said, I wonder what's down there. Or we see something on top of the ground, we pick it up and we see another one underneath it and we think, well, I imagine there's more even beneath that. So there's nothing inherently unethical about mining. Let's just get that straight. Uh, there, there's a lot of people who have have uh, carved out, literally, a life through mining and doing so ethically. That being said, as technology has increased, uh, we can look in the East Coast of the United States, places where I've spent a lot of time, uh, West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, for example, and you can see how the technology has outpaced the understanding of the implications of the use of that technology. And so you have entire mountainsides being devastated, and it's not just a mountain that's gone, but uh, there's, there's great impact to the surrounding area. And when we're thinking about water, uh, what happens to that watershed that it is immediately sitting around that project and downstream. So the proposed Pebble Mine Project, the mine that was going to go in there, it would have not just had a significant impact because of the infrastructure that would have had to go in. I mean, that itself is is concerning. That itself is something that uh, causes environmental protection groups, whether it be the EPA or a state organization, to hold up pro projects, to hold up programs, because a road that is being put in next to a stream or, or uh, over a, a watershed is going to, to be too significant of an impervious surface and it's going to cause problems with drainage, it's going to cause problems with flow, it's going to cause all sorts of issues. And 
Imagine the amount of road, bare minimum, that would have to go to a mining project that was going to be any significant size to get the equipment in, to get the ore out. Uh, so you're, you're not just talking about digging a hole in the ground. A lot more is happening. And so that is ultimately what led to the concern uh, for this project. It would cause, it would, it would mar the landscape. So there would be an aesthetic issue and there would be an, an irreversible damage that would happen to that part of Alaska in the headwaters of Bristol Bay. But then everything that takes, took place would have taken place up in that area would have had a significant impact downstream. And I think that salmon and rainbow trout and other things that live in that water are a perfect example of how that could have a devastating impact because you do mining. And even if there is, is 95%, and this is all complete conjecture, um, 95% remediation of things like siltation. So you blow up a rock, you move a bunch of, of soil and all the soil that you don't fully removed from that area that goes to the ground now at the very bare minimum is able to be washed into that water body or immediately filters down into that water body and now that all enters at an extremely exaggerated rate than would otherwise happen under normal weather conditions enters the water eventually over time all of the accumulated substrate whether it be silt or something else, is going to impede the ability of fish to spawn because they are unable to lay their eggs into the environment they're supposed to be in, the, the rocky uh, substrate of the bottom of, of the stream. And that's just one example. There are significant other issues that happen because, uh, as you may know, they don't use... Um, uh, pickaxes anymore to, to do mining. There is often not just heavy equipment, but there are chemical processes that are used to extract minerals from the ground. And so there are other things that can leach in to, to the, not just the surrounding soil and cause problems to the land, but all, of course, also in the water. And we know how it spreads much more quickly and a land animal can move. Um, but, a, but a, a, a aquatic animal doesn't have that same sort of flexibility. But one of the bigger issues that we find uh, when it comes to mining is uh, acid mine drainage. So when you mine, and again, this is not my area of expertise, but I had a really good friend who was uh, involved in a project to do acid mine remediation in Pennsylvania because that was a, a significant issue. And he, he talked me through it years and years ago, and it really stuck with me because it's something that we don't even really think about, but it plays a significant role whenever we are living in an industrial or post-industrial area. And what it is, is that you have uh, these these chemicals or, that are being used in the mining, but you also have, in, in a more significant aspect, when you are mining, you are releasing compounds into the, in, you know, above the ground and into the water that would otherwise take a long time to dissolve into the water and they would go into the water body at much lower levels in a, in a way that actually maintains that natural pH balance. But when they are released all at once, because all of these chemicals and all of these minerals that are being exposed through mining now are 
A, in the particulate form that I mentioned earlier, and B, are being exposed to water because aquifers often get broken into or because of water being used as a, a, a lubricant in mining, all of the, those acids are now entering into the water body. Now, you might have seen this uh, if, if you, again, if you live out east uh, and you see yellow rivers, you see yellow creeks or orange creeks. And what you see there is all these dissolved metals that were underground, but that were exposed through mining are now leaching out and coming out into, uh, into contact with rivers. And they effectively coat the bottom of rocks. I mean, you might pick up a, a small rock and it looks like it is just an orange rock, but the reason why it's orange is not because it's changed color. It has been coated by a, a mineral. And this is, is hostile for uh, macroinvertebrates. It's hostile for plants. And it, cre it creates a new species, find a niche there, including like iron-eating algae. I mean, if you want a nightmare, think about that, algae that eats iron. But uh, there's some really interesting things that you can read about uh, uh, acid mine uh, drainage and remediation online. But that was going to be a significant problem because of the Pebble Mine Project. So that is a very, very brief nutshell of what we, what we were looking at when it came to the issue of Pebble Mind in South Central Alaska. Um, there was arguments for it, of course. The arguments against it were very clear. It would take away jobs with commercial fishing. It would take away jobs from lodges and guides and things like that. It would have significant environmental impacts, both long-lasting from a viability standpoint of the in, the ecosystem, as well as an aesthetic standpoint for a part of the 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 country, uh, really, and the state that has a significant tourism aspect that's built upon aesthetic beauty. Now, there were those that had arguments for the mine. Um, significant, significant tax revenue for Alaska. Alaska is not, uh, you know, blowing, uh, you know, Silicon Valley or the or the New England area out of the water when it comes to uh, states with high uh, high yield. And so this would have brought significant income to the state of Alaska. Um, and it would also have created jobs. Uh, there can only be so many uh, anglers for, for commercial fishing. There can be only so many foresters for, for forestry. But this would have created a number of jobs. Um, and it would have created more uh, uh, independence from foreign uh, access uh, to, to, to these kind of minerals that we would be getting access to. So those are all pros and they all are legitimate. I mean, none of those things is bad or wrong in itself. The question is, what was the cost? What was the cost? And so I don't want to go through, nor do I have the time to go through blow by blow everything that happened from the like late 2000 aughts like 2008-9 when uh when it, the the DNR started fighting against it in Alaska all the way up to January 31st but there was a lot of backs and back and forths and there were back and forths under both democratic and republican administrations in fact there was a significant stoppage to the progress um, of pebble mine under the trump administration so you know if you if you're somebody who likes to paint with broad brushes you know figure that one out um but really to to draw it back into today um and this week on January 31st, the EPA blocked the development of the mine, and they did that by invoking uh, Section 404C of the Clean Water Act. Now, 404C of the Clean Water Act is effectively um, a way for the EPA to step in 
and say that what would happen here if this continued would be a significant consequential action that would cause irreversible damage to the area. There's much more technical language that could be used, but it is effectively the the EPA, a federal organization coming in and saying this is not a tenable project because it would have too much damage on the, the local environment. Now, well, Northern Dynasty, which is, I should have mentioned that earlier, the company that had for the last you know 15 years uh, or, or longer than that had been managing the Pebble Mine project, are they going to appeal? Of course they're going to appeal. But for all intents and purposes, what it appears like now is that this is a significant wall uh, and, and a hurdle that will be very, very difficult to jump for them to get back, to get this project back up and running. So it is seen as a victory. Of course, there's always some wariness because we we know, or I should say we don't know how the courts work, but it is should be seen as something good uh, in, in the sense that this area is going to be preserved and protected. Now, that being said, I don't want to like throw a wrench and stuff, but just a couple of things to think about. A couple of things for you to think about as you are maybe um, reveling in uh, the, this news or if you're just trying to figure out what happened. The first thing is, uh, notice I said earlier that this is a significant area for commercial fishing, and the commercial fisheries have been co-belligerents with the recreational catch-and-release fly anglers from the get-go. Now, if if you are such a tried-and-true tweed and creed, tweed and, tweed and creed? Tweed and creel creed. I guess I could talk about that. But anyway, if, if that is your like, it's got to be catch and release or it's it's the devil. Uh, know, that, know that the co-belligerents in this in this process of getting Pebble Mine shut down, some of the strongest advocates have been the sport fishing and more importantly, the commercial fishing uh, industries. People who kill fish, you know, by the boat full have been the ones who've been fighting to shut down Pebble Mine. So figure that out. I think it's a pretty consistent argument. I think it's understandable and how it works, but it's one of those things where, again, if, if you are very black and white when it comes to this stuff, you have to realize that uh, the people that probably won it weren't this tiny little group of anglers. They're probably a powerful uh, group of, of commercial fishers who are supplying uh, wild salmon, which... My goodness, if there's something that is not good in this world uh, in, in that swims in the ocean, it is uh, farm-raised salmon. So the wild salmon commercial fishers are co-belligerents, and you got to be okay with that. Uh, another thing to think about is, guess what? This was on public land. One of the battle cries, especially for the last 10 years, but certainly going back further, was you know public land, public land, public land. Well, this was happening on public lands. Northern Dynasty simply had the mining rights to public land owned by the state of Alaska. So public land is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, is not a, a, you know, a, a fail-safe for environmental issues. Um, there has to be more to it than that, because states and the federal government uh, operate in their best interest. They have to weigh the balance between the interests of their state and the state's economy, as well as interests that revolve around ecological and conservation issues. And so just because something is public land, it might be accessible. And, and sometimes 
you know, I think that is the the assumption. It's accessible. It's protected. Well, it might be accessible and protected, but there's a good chance that unless it has a certain designation attached to it, the state's okay with folks going in there and cutting down trees for the right amount of money or digging a giant hole for the right amount of money. So I don't say that to be cynical. I just say that to remind people that public land does not equal safe today, safe tomorrow, safe forever. Uh, because I think sometimes we can think that public land is some sort of uh, magic designation that we can put on to, to, to land and, and it keeps it safe. Just a couple of things to think about when it comes to this. But like I said, total scratching of the surface. It wouldn't surprise me if there's, like I said, multiple podcasts. There's already a lot of articles out there. This has the makings of a great little Netflix documentary. And I don't think anyone gets murdered, which would make it unique among their catalog of documentaries. So I would definitely uh, check that one out because it's it bare minimum. It's a stunningly beautiful part of, of the world and certainly part of the country. And it's worth looking at and seeing these enormous runs of fish. I mean, you have to remember that one of the big battles that we're fighting here in, in the contiguous United States, the lower 48, uh, is just the reduced number of salmon that are making their way into our coastal waters. This is happening unimpeded up there, even with the significant amount of commercial fishing that's being regulated to maintain these huge stocks. And so, you know, if you could take significant action hundreds of years ago in California or in Maine to, to stop what was happening to alter drastically these salmon fisheries, would you have stood up for it? Would you have slapped that sticker on uh, the back of your laptop case that has the cross and the, the project on it? Um, hopefully you would have, uh, but you would have thought about it and you would have been consistent in the way that you think about that and other conservation issues. So check out Pebble Mine what isn't happening, and uh, how that's good. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called Three Ways to Learn at the Fly Fishing Show. Three Ways to Learn at the Fly Fishing Show. Uh, this is my clarion call, my attempted clarion call, for people to not just go and walk around the fly fishing show. And I think I talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast, but I feel like I just got to keep saying it, saying it, saying it, because it bothers me when people say, hey, I don't want to go. People just want me to spend more money. If you're spending money to get in, then take advantage. Get every cent of your $15 or $25 worth as you go in and and you look at the stuff, which is fun, and do it. But then go sit down. I, I forced myself to do it just because I always talk about it. I forced myself to go and sit in seminars I wouldn't have otherwise sat in. And I had a blast. I wish I could have stuck around for another you know day and a half to to catch more of them. But there's different kinds of presentations, and so I talk about the different kinds of presentations in this article. So check that one out. Wednesday's was called Fishing Shopping in Person or Online. Now, I'm kind of bracing for the digital tomatoes to be thrown because I do make three cases for why you should shop online as opposed to a fly shop. But they are measured, they are responsible, they are in defense of fly shops generally. But uh, there's folks that, and I even saw it today when I was on Instagram, which just like, you know, never buy online. There's times and places and circumstances that warrant shopping online. And so I talked about that. In case you feel like you are doing some great disservice to the idea of fly shops or your local fly shop because you bought, you know, uh, uh, some flies from somebody online or a product from Amazon. And so I, I walk through that. Again, I love fly shops. I support fly shops. Some exciting fly shop stuff coming from Casting Across in the coming weeks. So stay tuned. But all that to say, there are times where you can buy stuff online and you shouldn't feel bad about it. This week's recommendation on the podcast is Squala. Squala is a 
outdoor clothing company specializing in fly fishing clothing and systems that are built from the fabric up. Now, why am I talking about Squala? Squala had probably the most aesthetically pleasing and organized booth in all of the Edison, New Jersey fly fishing show. That is not meant to denigrate anyone else's booth. Just Squala's was top notch and their floor was soft, which after uh, a day and a half of walking around concrete, a nice soft flooring material is going to go a long way in my book as far as the quality of your booth. But when I talk about built from the fabrics up, uh, the attention to detail in what fabric is used where on everything from uh, hooded uh, sun shirts all the way to premium waders is is done with exceptional attention to detail. And so I strongly encourage you to check out Squala. If you have a local fly shop that carries their stuff, then uh, definitely go in there and give it a touch and a feel. Uh, so high quality. I'm looking forward to talking to them here in the coming weeks and putting something together for Casting Across. But just had a real, real good time talking with a couple of reps from their company. And uh, it's the kind of company doing the kind of thing that I want people to check out. So I'm definitely encouraging you to head over to their website. I'll put a link to Squala on the show notes to this podcast page over at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and rate the podcast in iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. 